0: Are you just an accident of random molecules coming together? A friend of mine from seminary went out to dinner with uh, a friend of his, and his friend um, uh, was not a believer, was an atheist. Um, He he was a devout atheist, but but he always respected my friend, um, and and they always stayed to be good friends. They had a good relationship, and one day they were out uh, at dinner talking about God and the universe and how everything was made, and, and they were going back and forth uh, about the, you know, what he would say would be the absurdity of creation. Uh, and as his friend says, you know, how ridiculous it is that you Christians believe that God just made everything um, in six days. And, and so finally, my friend Jay um, said to his buddy, you know, I'm not gonna win you over with any argument or, or any apologetic, uh, but, but I'll just say this. When you look at your daughter as you tuck her into bed at night, do you say that she's an accident and that that one day she'll just vanish and all of her life, and life in general, is just meaningless? Or do you look at her with with all of her curls and, and all of her giggles? and the life that she has that is just unique. I'm going to go ahead and lay this down. <laughs> it's going to fall over anyways. And that God intends for her to live on forever. So which one makes more sense when you look at her laying in her bed at night? Is is she an accident, or is she a work of art? Today we get to continue in our series in the beginning. And, and if you remember, we've kicked off this series in Genesis, in Genesis 1, focusing on, on God as the primary agent in the beginning. God, uh, and then we talked about God creating space and time and everything and how how wonderfully cool that is to think about it. And it could just bend your mind thinking through all the how that works. But today we read, uh, we're going to read, that God creates men and women. In a very, very special way. And, and this creating act denies that we're just an accident of random molecules coming together. That, that God is creating something very, very special. And so I want us to get ready. This is exciting. Genesis 1, is it is bedrock. Genesis one. We're gonna look at verse twenty-six through thirty-one. We're gonna look at Genesis one, day six, and the imago day. And we're gonna look at it in three ways. We're gonna see the beauty, the broken, and the breathtaking revival. The beauty, the broken, and the breathtaking revival. And so let's let's stand if you would, if you're outside, stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Andrea is going to read it for us in Spanish, and so she'll pause between some verses so we know where we're following along with her as well.
1: Hello. Forget. All right, Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Y dijo Dios, hagamos al hombre nuestra imagen conforme a nuestra semejanza y ejerza dominio sobre los peces del mar, sobre las aves del cielo, sobre los ganados, sobre toda la tierra, que se arrastra sobre la tierra. Dios creó al hombre a imagen suya, a imagen de Dios lo creó, varón y hembra los creó. Dios los bendijo y les dijo: sean fecundos y multiplíquense, llenen la tierra y sométanla. Ejerzan dominio sobre los peces del mar sobre las aves del cielo y sobre todo ser viviente que se mueve sobre la tierra. También les dijo Dios, miren, yo les he dado a ustedes toda planta que da semilla, que hay sobre la superficie de toda la tierra, y todo árbol que tiene fruto que da semilla. Esto les servirá de alimento. Y a todo animal de la tierra, a toda ave de los cielos, y a todo lo que se mueve sobre la tierra y que tiene vida les he dado toda planta verde para alimento y así fue Dios dio todo lo que había hecho y era bueno en gran manera y fue la tarde y fue la mañana el sexto día this is the word of the Lord
0: thanks be to God alright you may be seated let's pray Father we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the, the beauty that is, that is in it And we ask that you will be able to unveil that beauty for us this morning, that we'll be able to see, see you and see your love for us as we read Genesis this morning. And so, Father, would you speak loudly and wake up our dead souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the beauty. Now, remember how how God has been creating, if you've been following along with us. God creates in in this rhythm, right? He has this cadence uh, of creation. Let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. It kind of has, you can bob your head to it. And at the end of each day, and it was good. Let there be and it was, and it was good. And so creation, better tasting than nightlight donuts, Sweeter than the sounds of children laughing. More, more fulfilling than crossing off your to-do list. Each day, God ends it with, and it was good. It was good. But day six is different. Day six, something truly special happens. God creates not, let there be, and there was. In verse 26 of Genesis 1 we see that something changes here. It says, Then God said, Let us make man. Oh, (laughs) let's slow down. Let's slow down and and let's craft something truly magnificent. Let us make and form and craft, spend some extra time on. God just just made the splendors of the skies and the stars and water lilies and gazelles and butterflies all just by the word of his power. Let there be and they, they, they come into being. And then he says, let us make male and female. And when we create mankind, let us do something completely different than any other day on creation. On on day six, God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. If after our likeness. In our image. In the image of God. Or in Latin is the word the imago Dei. The image of God. It, it's saying that we are reflectors of God. Just, just like the moon is totally different from the sun, but it reflects the sun's light at night, so too we as image bearers, totally different from God in many respects, but but we reflect God. We, we, we are mirrors of his reflection here on earth. And so now this book of Genesis is, think of who it's been given to. It, it has been given to a pilgrim people People who've been wandering in the desert after leaving Egypt, after leaving slavery, and this concept of the Imago day would have been absolutely radical to them. It would have been radical in that day. It would have been countercultural. The nations of that time recognized only one who imaged or embodied the gods, and that was the king. Because in Egypt, the pharaoh was considered the only image... Of God and so to say that everybody not just Egyptians but everybody even the lowly Israelites had something in them that was godlike was wild was wild. Genesis 1 presses that every single one of you were created with the image of God and so no one here should ever say I'm not good enough. We should never utter the words that I hate myself, I hate how I look, because you've been created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis says it better than anyone I've ever heard it say in his book, In the Weight of Glory, he says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature that if you saw that now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people, is what Lewis says. You have never, ever talked to a mere mortal because they've been created in the Imago Day. Can you fathom this? Like when we talk to one another, when, when we're joking with one another, we are, we are joking with the closest and clearest picture of God on earth. I mean, is that how we see each other? Is that how we view others? Do, do you see others as an immortal image bearer? Like that's what day six is telling us. Or even even ourselves. Do you see yourself as a reflection of the Almighty? Some of us struggle with how we view others. Others of us struggle with how we view ourselves. And so the Imago Dei, God's image is in you too. Did you ever wonder where we get this idea of of civil rights from? You ever heard that phrase, civil rights? Or human rights? It's base... Should, if it doesn't, should come from Genesis 126. That 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 by our our very nature, there are these natural laws that not 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 laws that we come up with and say this should be true, but but by our very nature, simply by being human beings, you and I have rights and protections and freedoms. And it's as Thomas Jefferson wrote. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and we would add in emphasis, and women, no matter race or ethnicity. So all men and women, no matter race or ethnicity, are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a beautiful ideal. But this verse, Genesis 1, 26, isn't just the ideal. This is truth. This is bedrock. It, it is an anchor material for how we see each other. You have a right, a civil right, no matter if you believe in God or not. Uh, he creates you worthy, unique, and special. And then it says in verse 27, he creates them male and female. Now notice the difference with, with the rest of creation. When he creates, uh, when he creates these things, he creates them according to their kind. You see that 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 rhythm happening happening all over Genesis, but not with human beings. Not according to a kind. It's kind. It says he creates them male, and he created them female, meaning first we see the absolute beauty of the unity of creation, but then we see the diversity in creating them male and female. And so God is not eliminating distinctions biologically. There are differences. But differences that don't strike against the equality. Th- this is absolutely gorgeous. I want us to think of this ideal that, and this truth that is laid down here in Genesis 1. Peasants and provosts have equal value. Pawns and princes, prisoners and the powerful, children and CEOs, caretakers in corporate America the help and the helpless young and old and Presbyterian and Baptist and Jew and Gentile and black and Hispanic and Asian and white and Native American and immigrant anyone ever in all of creation you are created in the Imago day. you cannot take that away and then he tells them men and women to go in verse 28 and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And as we said before, this is all happening before the fall. Think about that. So, by happening before sin enters the world, we get a picture into the way. It how God wants the world to work, how he wants humans to operate for eternity. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply, have babies, fill the earth, then subdue it, and then have dominion over it. This is what is commonly referred to as the cultural mandate. What's that? Well, it's this cultural mandate is, it really, it's the first great commission. It was to see the hidden potential in the world and then tap into it. It, it, the population was to increase and then fill the earth to discover its possibilities. And so fill your heart with wonder about this world. I love it. Like I just, I, so in God's original plan, filling the earth, exploring and wondering about the secrets of the universe was fulfilling the first great commission and therefore was an act of worship. Don't miss this. Like, worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings, though it is that. This is worship. But worship is is painting on a canvas. It is imitating our Creator in His creation. Worship is spelunking in caves, it's walking trails, it's traveling the world, it's exploring your city, It's, it's asking hard questions about math and science and philosophy and poetry and history, it's photography it's graphic design, it's, it's music, it's city building. I mean, think about what God calls them to do to be fruitful and multiply tame creation into something orderly and beautiful. And, and that's not just making stuff, that, that is making culture and making cities and to be something habitable. I mean, if you were to start a new city, what are some things you would need to do. If you were to start a new city, if you're thinking cities with buildings and things like that, well, you probably need some construction workers. You probably need some masons and some some carpenters and some electricians to build the city, and then you probably need some engineers, maybe even before that, um, with this large plan, maybe some city planners, some finance management so someone can make sure this all works out. We can we can fund it. People who know how to run Excel with people who are working in these buildings. Uh, you probably need someone to lay some pipes, to have some water. You need you need the, you need need all of these people who are working very hard. They're going to get hungry, right? When people work hard, they get hungry. And so you're gonna probably going to need some food. And so you're going to need some people to go farm and to bring the food and who know how how to bring these these vegetables and these plants and mix them together into something beautiful and something wonderful to make something good. And then what's really needed when you start this city is you need someone who can take a brown bean, who can crush it up, and and who can pour hot water over it, and he can give people enough energy to do the work, right? This is essential to this city that God is creating here on earth. And for city to not just be dull work, you, you need some pastries, you need pastries not because they're good for you but because they're fun. And so you need people who to make to make pastries. And to do all of that you need farmers and laborers. And and we see all of creation, all of God's creatures all working together to make this beautiful city of God. This is the ideal. And at the end of the day when 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 God at end of day 6 he looks at this whole world and how well run it is with men and women creating culture. He says in verse 31, "And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good." Behold it was very good. This is this is the beauty. This is good and right and true the way the world is meant to be, and so much so that God emphasizes this, that it was very good. Every single other day, at the end of the day, it was good. And on day six, God goes off script, off the beat, and says it was very good. It was the best. But as you and I know, the beauty gets broken. It's almost impossible to read Genesis 1 and, and see this picture of this, this almost utopia and compare the first few chapters of Genesis and compare with our own experience and say these things don't feel like they match up. This is the ultimate how it started versus how it's going meme. God created everyone and everything in beauty, imprinted with the dignity and royalty, and yet after the fall, after sin enters the world, what we get are human beings ranking other human beings on their worthiness. Some are elite, some are inferior. I mean, one of the best and, and I would say the worst uh, examples of this is in the infamous Dred Scott v. Sanford court decision. If you don't know this from history, this this was a landmark decision of the United States Supreme Court, which the court held that, that the United States Constitution was not meant to include American citizenship for black people, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free. And so we all knew this is actually what America believed at the time. But then to put it into writing like this was just horrifying, I mean, it's, it's one of our most shameful moments as a nation. And, it, and it's not as if others were, were, weren't telling them so at the time either. Supreme Court Justice John McLean wrote in his dissenting opinion, after the, the, the Supreme Court case decision came down, he said, I'm dissenting from this, I disagree with this. And he wrote, a slave is not mere chattel, an object. They're not property but they bear the imprint of their creator. What this justice was arguing was that this is a violation of the Imago day. Human beings are not objects to be bought and sold. Eric Mason in his book, Woke Church, writes, most African Americans have had at least two life-altering experiences that are burned into their memory. The moment they realized they were black, and the moment they realized that that was a problem. When someone sees that their very existence is seen as a problem, that's a problem. For God tells us in Psalm 139, you, you knitted me together with all this extra love and care together in my mother's womb, that he has created you fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet we ignore this. This is the breaking of the Imago Dei. This is the breaking of the Imago Dei all over history, and it's not just limited to the United States. Germany, inspired by Jim Crow, would, would create the Nuremberg Laws, which would prevent Jews from owning businesses. Being employed in universities, working in the medical and legal professions, and marrying non-Jews. Because for Hitler, the dignity of the German race was limited to Aryans. Is that right? Are some races superior and others inferior? Are some races meant to be slaves? Genesis 1 says, heck no. That's why Moses could say, let my people go, because this was tearing at, at the fabric of the laws of the universe. It was a violation of the Imago Day and the created order. And then some might say, well, that's all in the past. We've moved on. That, that's an old, ignorant way of thinking. Well, this week alone, as Malcolm referred to, has proven us that the answer is no. An announcer in Norman, Oklahoma, was calling a women's basketball game, and he thought his mic had been turned off. And I won't demean these girls anymore by repeating what he said, but but that he said he hopes that they would lose and then called them the N-word. And after the media store came about all of this, his response is, I'm a family man. I'm married. I have two children. And at one time was a youth pastor and continued to be a member of a Baptist church. And then goes on to cite that he has type 1 diabetes and his blood sugar was spiking. And so he blames it on the sugar. But the gut reaction seems to always be, I'm not a racist. And I just love how Dr. Christina Edmondson says it, and she she writes, How refreshing would it be to hear what I said is a reflection of my heart. I am a racist, but I don't want to be. I accept every bit of accountability to protect others and to help myself. Oh, that would have been a wonderful response. But, goodness, that would have been helpful for us to actually look and, and, and search our own hearts. But that's not, just, that's not just one-off story, as we heard that in Atlanta, in Georgia, there was a boy named Aaron, sorry, Robert Aaron Long, and he went up, and he shot 3 different massage parlors killing 8 image bearers 6 of whom were Asian American and you heard their names before in the last year alone hate acts against Asian Americans has risen 150% and for our Asian brothers and sisters i want to say i'm sorry Sorry we're not speaking up more. Kathy Park Hong laments, because we're invisible, the racism against us has also been invisible until this past year. And this is why it's important that people are speaking up. And so, y'all, do you hear the cries of, of our brothers and sisters who are hurting Not only are things getting more and more violent out there, our brothers and sisters are saying we're invisible. I mean, what's a worse way that we can dishonor the doctrine of the Imago Dei than to tell someone, anyone, you don't matter? You're invisible. You're nothing. And when we get called out for acting in dehumanizing ways, our response is that's not true. I'm not a racist. I'm good. Y'all, we are broken mirrors cutting others and brandishing our jagged edges, but claiming them to be smooth. If we don't stop, we're going to keep cutting and keep dehumanizing and never stop to ask, how am I contributing to this? At some point, we've got to look inward. At some point, we have to look at all this evil and all this tearing at the fabric of the Imago Dei and ask the question, how could anyone do this? How could I ever get to that point? How did I get to that point? Of hating a human being so much that I want them their life to be snuffed out. It all comes down to Genesis 1. When we quit seeing people created in the image of God, this is a natural product of that. If someone is not human, then it's not dehumanizing when we treat them this way. And we do this all the time. You ever heard someone say, those people are animals. Or he's a monster. We've just taken away their humanity. And we've taken away any shred of decency in them And Brene Brown says, violence starts with dehumanization, and dehumanization starts with language. And so the way we speak about someone gives us a way to frame how we treat them, and when we dehumanize women to be just objects, or or Asians, or sex workers, or those of a different class, or immigrants, or anyone we just don't like. Whenever we do this with our language, we now are opening the floodgates to violence and to abuse. If we treat anyone less than royalty, as kings and queens, we we now mar the way that God's created them to be. But (laughs) praise the Lord. (laughs) That's not the end of the story. Praise the Lord. I mean, as dark as things are, as bad as we've taken the beauty of the Imago Day and broken it into a millions of pieces, I want us to see now this breathtaking revival. When when Calvin was asked, given the atrocities and the evil that we see, has the Imago Day been totally erased from humanity? Have the the abusers lost their imago day? And his response was, rather than being completely erased from all existence, the image of God is like a badly burned object. It does not cease to exist, but it lies in the form of ash and dust, and it's almost unrecognizable, bearing no resemblance of what it used to be. But do you hear the good news? It never, ever goes away. Maybe as we've talked about all these forms of dehumanization uh, and examples of how far humanity has fallen, you've seen yourself doing some similar things. Similar objectifying, objectifying, dehumanizing, and, and cutting with maybe your words. I mean, have you ever looked at an image bearer and said, they're trash? Ever hated someone deeply? You ever wished someone never existed? Not only are we marring their image in your mind, you're now burning yourself at the very same time. God created us to be image bearers and culture makers, and when we treat anyone else as less than kings and queens, we queens, we become image takers and culture killers, and our own image of God gets ashed over, burned, marred. And at this point, what do you do if you've realized that's where you're at? Like, do you you just get crushed under the weight of your sin? Like, that that same hatred that you now had for others is now turned inward, and you just hate yourself. Is it just morbid introspection that you now hate yourself? You wish you never existed, not them, you. Well, let me tell you about mosaics. A mosaic, it's a, it's a form of art where, where damaged and shattered pieces of glass or stone or whatever material is put together to form something more beautiful than it could have if the cracks and the breaks never existed. And so one of the reasons that we've, we, we call ourselves mosaic here. Uh, is for this very reason. Because we, yes, we're bringing together multiple cultures and multiple stories and multiple hi- histories, but we're also bringing a ton of broken people together. And sometimes that, that brokenness may feel like you're just shattered. It may feel like you're irredeemable. But there is beauty in, that comes through Brokenness. Because God's grace shines brightly through us when we are put together, and our church aims to be a work of art that is both honest about its brokenness, but just as honest about God's grace. Amen? It it, it is a breathtaking grace when we see that he brings together such broken people and brings them together and offers them real, real grace, undeserved, unmerited grace. Isaiah 61 says it so beautifully that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then he goes on to say to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. Oh the beauty of that verse. That is such a beautiful verse that God would bring beauty from ashes. Or as we'll sing later that he will turn graves into gardens. I mean, how does he do it? The gospel is this right here that God sees you and yes, he sees your burned and charred and sometimes unrecognizable character in the creation that he's made because sin has made you that way, but out of love for you, that, that's not all that he sees. Out of great love for you, Jesus became like you, and he took on flesh, on our flesh. And so he became like us in every single way except for sin. And he willingly sacrificed his life by letting the crowds throw stones at him. By letting them whip him. As they mocked him, as they dehumanized him, as they tortured him, because they thought that he wasn't worthy to be alive. And in that very act, he was the most worthy, the most deserving, the true Imago Dei. I mean, on the cross, we see the most inhuman moment in history. We see humanity broken. The wrath of God poured out on the sun instead of on humankind. I mean, it's a profoundly an inhuman event. And this is the means through which Christ saves us. And then he comes back from the grave and he brings legions of us with him. Jesus' resurrection becomes your resurrection. When he came back to life, he brings us back to life with him and he washes away that charred soul and revives the image that was there all along. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This is something that blew me away this week as Malcolm and I were talking this past week, that the Imago Day is, yes, highlighting God's dignity in you, the royalty in you. But one area that I think we fail to highlight when talking about the Imago Day is the implications of the access that the Imago Dei provides us and the intimacy that the Imago Dei gives us, that is bound up in it. Because who did Christ come to die for? Who did he come to save? Christ came to save those created in the image of God. He didn't come to save animals. He came to save image bearers. Because he cares for you intimately. He puts on our image and gives image bearers access to the Father. And so this this weekly offer that we make to you every single week at Mosaic is an invitation into the divine life, into community with the Trinity. And so God now says, you're one of us. Come on in. I'm going to invite the band back up here as I finish. He revives you from the dead. By dying and rising in your place. And it's truly beauty from ashes. God isn't done with his creative work. This this very day, he is creating and recreating hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And I ask, will you let him do that? Will you let him recreate you? Will you let grace in to wash away all that ash and brokenness? and will it let, let it change how you see the world and see the people around you. So today, I, I, I pray that we see the dignity and the intimacy in the Imago Dei. Today, I pray that the doctrine of the Imago Dei would change how you view one another and how you view yourself. And I pray that, that we unlearn, as Tyler Burns said this past week, that we unlearn the doctrine of inferiority. And see ourselves as worthy, valuable, mirrors of God's image here on earth. Unlearn the doctrine of inferiority. Unlearn the doctrine of your superiority. And let's learn the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Let me pray for us.